The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cizwem Bofu-Walsh, and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Norwazim Kwanazi is Associate Professor of Medical Anthropology at Wiser and leads its Medical Humanities in Africa research program. She speaks to Wiser Director Professor Sarah Nuttall about her work. Norwazi, it's so good to be able to talk to you about your work. Um, I'd like to start with a biographical angle. You once told me that you had wanted to be a midwife, but that you became an anthropologist instead. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. I spent six months living in San Diego when I was 19 years old. And while I was there, I learned a lot about the politics of childbirth, particularly from the birth gatherings that I attended across the U.S. with Mary Kroger who was a certified nurse midwife. At these gatherings, I listened to midwives talking about birth outside of the hospital setting, which to me at the time was quite a radical idea that people would consciously choose to give birth outside of hospital. At these gatherings, I also listened to women talking about how they were badly treated during childbirth. And I wondered whether there were similar stories in, in Southern Africa and this is really what made me want to become a midwife. Unfortunately, I was too late to apply to medical school. And since I needed to go to university the year after, I applied for a degree in the humanities. And anthropology was one of my subjects. I fell in love with medical anthropology, which I saw as a way to continue my interest in childbirth. Incidentally, my PhD supervisor in Cambridge, Francoise Babiri Friedman, is an anthropologist and a midwife, and she used to attend home births. But also she knew some of the US-based midwives that had inspired me. That's so unusual and serendipitous, a supervisor midwife. Nawazi, your work on childbirth or natality, as you sometimes term it, soon extended into a wider ambit of research on reproducing bodies and reproducing societies? Mm, my initial focus was actually on young women, pregnancy and birth, and what is commonly known as teenage pregnancy. And I chose to focus on young women because at the time I was young myself. And to move away from the stigma of young pregnancies, I cast my net more widely and framed my research in terms of the experiences of growing up in post-apartheid South Africa. My age actually made it easier to have a range of conversations that went beyond the immediate focus on early childbearing and included discussions around um, having to undergo male initiation rights, young people's experiences of living in the township, their perceptions of the city, and their dreams and aspirations. Um, and when I think about it, in hindsight, um, what was critical at the time was that we could speak quite openly about sex and relationships without having to observe a particular unspoken gender and generational norm about who you can and cannot speak to openly about sex. And as I kept on returning to the field over time, my conversations with young people actually have become less open and they're more guarded despite everything that I try. Um, and I've come to realize that I can no longer have those kinds of relationships with young people or conversations. So in my recent work in Johannesburg, for example, I've employed a different approach. 
And I work with an interdisciplinary team, which consists also of young people. And the recent work that I've done on sexuality and sexual health, um, the team that I worked with included a biomedical researcher and an artist. And we used a variety of research methods and tools which um, prominently featured visual and digital technologies. So although I still continue to return to my initial field site in Cape Town, although now living in Johannesburg less often, um, my, the focus of my work is still very much on young people, but it's now broader than just biological reproduction, and in, it now includes questions around social reproduction, particularly the reproduction of families, and the focus is really on the kinds of families that occur with the birth of a child to a mother who is still in her teenage years. And you began using the term young families after that? Yes, yes. I used the term young families really to discuss this very emotive topic of teenage-aged pregnancy, which is actually a common occurrence around many parts of the world. And also because I'm interested in the types of families that occur because of a pregnancy to a young mother. So the word family really is not meant to describe a family constituted through blood and or marriage. It's essentially about how people make relatedness and how they build or are absorbed into relationships of care. So young families allows us really to see that families are made and also they're unmade. And it helps us think about how making families is fluid, it's flexible, and it's also an ever-changing process that's really affected by a range of factors. And what's interesting is that in South Africa, the issue of paternity and the presence or absence of fathers has been a central issue. And my ongoing research actually reveals a new or rather different dynamic around the centrality of paternity. And in particular, we're finding that claims to paternity are not always accepted. And people may actually consciously ignore the genealogical links by denying paternity particularly um, from men who aren't able to support their children, or from men who actually future relations and links are not desired. And in some cases, the acknowledgement of paternity may be accepted even if the men are not able to perform the particular rights that legitimate those claims. So the word family really here is used to kind of describe how people make connections and create relationships of care for themselves and for others. It reminds me, and it actually comes about in relation to the group of young people that I worked with um, during my PhD fieldwork. And the youngest member of this tightly knit group was 13 years old. And later, as I kept on going back to the field, I learned that he'd now become a father. And I was quite intrigued by what this meant and what his relationship with the child and with the mother was. And this got me interested in the reproduction of families in urban townships, um, essentially how families are made and what the dynamics of family making are. Yeah, could we turn to questions of methodology and fieldwork? How, how did they unfold for you over the years? Um, well, having done research on a variety of things, um, including... So life course, kinship and care, which is basically my work around young families. But also I'm interested in 
medical education and health interventions. So there are different ways to approach ethnography, and a lot of it depends on the topic, as well as how long you'll be doing your research and also um, your ethnographic sensibility. And for me, a big consideration has been trying to consider the many permutations of how something can be read or how it appears, because at the heart of ethnography is also translation and comparison. So I remember being very anxious about the best way to enter the field when I did my PhD research and, and being aware of the kind of gender gerontocracy that existed in Nyanga East and also the power that religious and political and community leaders had. At the very beginning of my uh, fieldwork, I accepted an invitation that came from the wife of a religious pastor who also happened to be studying anthropology um, and she invited me to attend a church service. And at the end of the service, she introduced me and a Japanese anthropologist who she'd also invited um, and spoke about our research. Um, the topic of the Japanese anthropologist's work was on choral music. Um, and when she introduced this, the research was greeted with applause, while mine on teenage pregnancy was greeted with silence. And the pastor's wife actually intervened to explain that while I looked like a child because I was quite young then, I was not and that I was actually older than her because I was doing my PhD and she was only doing her master's degree. And she also pointed out that I was pursuing my education and had not become pregnant as a young person and so therefore I was actually a good role model to young people. But based on this kind of interaction, I decided to look for a different way to enter the field. So how does all of this, uh, this experience in the field enable you to think about lines of relatedness um, as you've turned them? Well, when I talk about families as sets of relations and the idea of relatedness as being t critical to who we call family, relatedness in this sense is based on an understanding of a set of roles and responsibilities and obligations that follow for, from being related and from being family. So, for example, as a sibling, you're expected to act in a certain way, or as a father figure, you're expected to act in a particular way. And most of these time, most of the time, these ideas are dictated by cultural norms, and these are also changing and often always negotiated. So my interest in young families, for example, is really about... Um, the new changing roles and responsibilities that are given to men who decide to accept paternity or to claim paternity without having to fulfill particular kinds of um, cultural rights. But also, I mean, we have to think about the fact that some of these obligation, obligations that come with relatedness are also contested. And so they do involve negotiation and negotiating conflicts, particularly conflicts that arise around the issue of how care is, enact is enacted. And we also need to remember that care is not always experienced positively. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How, how, does, how does the question of generation and intergenerationality work in conditions of relatedness? Specifically, in terms of young families, um, which is essentially describes a relationship where the mother of the child is young, and it's also likely that her own mother is young, and so her own mother might actually still be of reproductive age, or she might um, be employed, or both. 
And so we have to think about the decisions that are made around care. And for a very long time, we've always had this idea that grandparents, grandmothers specifically, will care for the child of a teenager mother. And when the grandmother is quite young, new negotiations rise and um, and different ideas about and responsibilities about who provides care happen. But in a sense, the focus on young families also sheds light on the particular care that happens between the mother and her own mother in the way that her own mother helps her navigate her transition to motherhood and how she helps her own mother navigate a form of respectability. So this is a care that is very interesting in in the way it happens between generations of women. In the end, you know, what does all of this tell us so far about young people's worlds in the situations that you've studied? Well, it tells us that we don't always know how they live and that we often resort to a single story about their lives. Um, so, for example, after countless versions of the story that men want to deny paternity or are prone to denying paternity, especially for children that are born outside of a recognized union, my research in the early 2000s, um, actually, when I started my research, I would see that, but now things have changed, and yet the narrative continues. So despite what's happening on the ground, the narrative hasn't changed at all. And this research is coming out both in work that's being done in KwaZulu-Natal and in the Western Cape, um, specifically that fathers want to be involved in the lives of their children, especially young fathers, and that they take the role of fatherhood quite seriously, even though they aren't able to perform the particular rights that legit that legitimate these particular claims. And also there's another situation that comes to mind of work that I've done in Botswana around a sexuality education program that was being provided in schools, where they were encouraging young people to date um, they, what they call their schoolmates um, rather than people who are older rather than sugar daddies, for example. And what they found was that young girls were actually dating men in their early 20s um, and not sugar daddies. And the reason for this was because these young men had access to condoms, whereas their schoolmates didn't because of the very strict rules about buying condoms or getting them from clinics. Um, so girls were actually making choices about safer sexual relationships um, and about avoiding HIV and unwanted pregnancies. And yet it was so difficult for people to see this. Ah, yes. Yes, this is all about the, the value of unexpectedness and the, and the surprising, rather than the, the dangers of a single story that novelist Chimamanda Adichie has spoken about. Um, you've written about this. You've written about the ways in which medical, anthrop uh, medical humanities work in Africa often repeats singular stories about African lives. Um, and you've talked about your own investment. I've heard you speak about it often um, in in telling a multitude of stories about the people you work with and that you're interested in. Do you think that the Medical Humanities in Africa network that you relaunched last week will contribute to this? Yes. Um, well, our intention in in creating this this relaunch of the network was in a way to connect people, um, academics, activists, artists, uh, and researchers from across the continent who are specifically interested in health-related issues. 
And we actually really want to create a platform where we can speak to each other and also think together from our various locations across the continent and also from our diverse backgrounds. So we're actually hoping that this network will enable us to also kind of showcase the richness of the research and scholarship and other forms of work that are actually happening and make them accessible to a wider audience. Absolutely. Yeah, exciting. Yeah. Noazi, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Um, and thank you very much for actually creating the space to speak about and reflect on the work so far. And, um, and also, yeah, I'd like to kind of extend my thanks to the wonderful colleagues that I have at WISER who are intellectually generous and incessantly curious. <laughs>